Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 10th, 2013. It's a Tuesday, and this is episode 1263 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, we're going to continue our series on food forest questions and answers. Um, I was kind of a little worried that I'm doing too much on this subject. Uh, basically, I've had this for every Tuesday show for the past three, four weeks now. Um, but here's the reality. Every time I do it, I get a flood of new questions, and I have a massive backlog of questions on this subject. And I just feel that if there's this many questions on this topic, that the interest must be huge. Um, so we'll do this one, and I'll probably take a break from it for the rest of the year, and we'll come back and pick up on this series again sometime in January, just because it is becoming uh, a bit overwhelming maybe for those that don't have a huge interest in this. But if you'll hang with me today, let me make a case for you before I start answering questions why this might be, and I don't mean permaculture, I mean just the food forest component of permaculture, the most important thing if you're concerned about with your your, your safety and security with food in the future. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What do you get from the Berkey Guy? It might be shocking, but you'll get Berkey water filtration systems and other great things for your prepping needs, long-term storage food and a lot of other really great stuff. But why would you get your Berkey from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Because what are you going to do? Go get your Berkey from Jim the non-Berkey Guy Smith down at the local gun show who's selling them because he got into preparedness this year because he thought it was a good idea because his brother Tom told him it was? Don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy if you have an opportunity to buy from the original, the only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff Gleason. The reason really, though, is you're going to get great pricing because he's one of the top dealers for Berkey in the world. And you know what? You're going to get customer service that you will not believe. I just got an email from a guy that said basically he put his Berkey together wrong. I don't really know how you do that. It's pretty, but not to pick on the guy or anything because he had great things to say about Jeff. He had a problem. It was probably leaking. I'm not sure, but he, he sent Jeff an email. Jeff emailed him back and this is like early morning. Call me. Here's my number. So Jeff gets him on the phone, walks him through everything, gets him squared away, uh, in a matter of minutes. Try that with a non-Berkey guy with your Berkey and see if that works out for you. Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason, you can find his Berkeys and all his other great stuff at directive21.com. And he has discount programs on both Berkeys and their filters and on the other great items available in the Member Support Brigade. So check out the benefits section if you're a member before you order from the original Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. What are you uh, going to get from J.M. Bullion? How about silver and gold? Uh, when we uh, had to let go of a, of a prior sponsor in the silver and gold industry, I knew we had to have somebody. Um, so I kind of even cheated. I had people on a waiting list, and I said, you know, I don't need another person that sells long-term storage food. I've got got that covered with great people. We need a, a precious metal sponsor. So I looked around, and I approached, like, Monex and Atmex, and they had good pricing and a good record of customer service. But I'm like, could I talk to your president or your owner or at least, like, you know, you're, you're somebody at a director level? I'm like, well, you talk to director of marketing. I don't want your director of marketing. I want somebody that's in control. And they're like, we don't care. 
feel like you were talking to you at all. I'm like, well, okay, I'll go talk to somebody else. And they're like, so do it. So I did. And I went and found JM Bullion, and I found a company that had better pricing than Atmex or Monex, where I could talk to their president, Michael, anytime I wanted, and I knew I could take care of any issues that came up for you. I brought them on, and they've got great relationships with many members of this audience. You can check them out today at jambullion.com. If you're making an order greater than $300, they even do a discount for you. And make sure you check that out in your member support brigade area. On that note, um, I am running a sale for member support brigade, 30 bucks for your first year. Uh, the discount code on that is DEC2013, again, December 2013, basically. Um, there's a post all about it on the website. You can go scroll, scroll down to it. But I put out a post today called MSB Discount Highlights, Seeds and Gardening. And I realized I haven't done a good job, really, for the people that are providing all these discounts and being, you know, really kind of driving home how many great discounts there are. Because, you know, they put those discounts in there so, frankly, members will use them. And I haven't done a great job of communicating just how much is there to people that are considering joining. So let me just real quick go through today's highlight, seeds and gardening, because we're going to talk about permaculture today. And frankly, it's wintertime. It's cold as hell outside. My whole yard's still covered in a couple inches of ice. We should get a lot of thought today. But this is going to be the time, you know, going into Christmas and you're sitting in front of your seed catalogs and planning what you're going to do for the new year when the uh, when the warm weather comes back. And it'll be back before we know it, getting your seed started for early planting and all that good stuff. So how about this? Progressive gardens, um, tons of products for hydroponic systems, fertilizers, natural lawn care, rain barrels, you name it, they've got it. Um, 10% discount. Progress Earth is also run by Evan Folds, who runs uh, Progressive Gardens. Uh, the global distributor of the Vortex Brewer System and other great stuff, 10% discount. Darby Simpson Consulting, maybe you need some help figuring out where to start. Well, you can get that from Darby Simpson. He's a great guy. And uh, he'll help you out, and uh, he'll give you a discount of 10%, and you can even get a bigger discount than that and add on to it and end up with a 20% discount if you do uh, a certain thing that you can find out about in the uh, Member Support Brigade area. But discount for Darby Simpson's consulting on getting started, whether it's as a homesteader or as a farmer yourself. Um, terroir Seeds, um, 10% discount on all seed orders from Terroir Seeds. These guys are... Awesome. They have stuff that nobody else has. When I found them and told you guys about them, so many of you guys reached out and ordered from them. They contacted me, and I nailed them for a discount for you. Uh, backyard Food Production. I talk about Marjorie Wildcraft's DVD series all the time. MSB members get 25% off of that. That's a pretty significant discount. Soil Cube. Um, this is a product that will pay for itself. You make these little cubes of soil. You start your plants in it. And uh, you don't use any pots or liners or anything like that. The roots don't get pruned. They air prune themselves. It's a great way to do things. Um, they're 25 bucks. They're worth every penny, but you get yours for $19.95 as, a, uh, as an MSB member. Uh, the Victory Seed Company, uh, one of the coolest seed companies out there. Uh, they've got just about everything you'd want from heirloom vegetables and things like that. Um, they really are dedicated to preserving and protecting open pollinated and heirloom seeds and keeping them available to home gardeners. And they're big fans of the show, by the way. Uh, 10% off all orders. That's just the stuff for seeds and plants and gardening. Um, so, yeah, this would be a good time to join at 30 bucks a year if you're not yet a member. Uh, you can find out more at the website. Just make sure you take advantage of the discount if you join. The discount code is... Uh, DEC 2013, Delta Echo Charlie 2013, 
And, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to be working very hard this month to bring on at least one, if not two, really additionally great seed providers that do some things that uh, Terroir and Victory don't do. We've had some other ones, uh, and one reason or another we were we didn't retain them, but uh, we're going to get you some more. I've got some really cool ones I'm going to be approaching. Uh, one is a huge, huge provider of heirloom seeds, and I uh, have interviewed their president before. I have no reason to believe he won't uh, won't want to put up a discount, especially going into the busy season for those guys. So uh, do consider joining the member support brigade. Now let's get into our year, the year 1263. Uh, Wikipedia is pretty thin. Uh, but it says in markets, Edward, heir to the throne of England, seizes 10,000 pounds, which has been deposited to the trust of the Knights Templar in London by foreign merchants and English magnates. Um, so I've got a little bit of uh, more on that from uh, Alex, who, who sends me a lot of stuff on history. Edward, the future king of England, raids the safe deposit boxes at the new temple in London, of 10,000 pounds. But Alex did the work for me and converted it. What would that be in today's money? What would that be in today's money? $14,621,000. Uh, this is known as sequestration, where certain monies of unfavored peoples are set aside. The Knights Templar run the new temple, so it was considered safe and a holy place to store valuables for people of any class. Ugh, right. Um, he says, this isn't as bad as it looks. It's worse. No place is safe from government when it wants your stuff, and the government of King Henry III is being choked off from its tax revenues by the barons, so he's doing everything he can by hook or crook to get his money. That makes me think of the movie Idiocracy. Upgrade going to get his money, and either you know what that is or you don't. Um, but in this case, uh, Prince Edward, uh, heir to the throne, is going to get his money, and he's going to get his money from whoever he has to take it from, And when a government's in distress, it's not above stealing the assets of its people. And doing so through class warfare. Notice it says, um, undesirables, unfavored people. We go after the rich, the greedy rich, or we go after whoever we can vilify at the time and take their money first as the people cheer, not realizing that you're probably next. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show, which is Food Forest Questions and Answers Part 3. Um, I've talked a lot recently about how important permaculture is to modern survivalism, how it is the only system I've examined that actually answers all of the concerns that we have about a society moving forward in very uncertain times. Economic uncertainty, water uncertainty, food uncertainty, resource uncertainty. It's the only thing I've found that actually addresses these. When I first started talking to people like Jeff Lawton directly, I realized that they were more concerned sometimes about critical survival needs than I even seemed like I was, which was kind of strange to me because I was like, I felt like I would have to explain where our angle comes from. And they don't worry about the angle, they just do. Things like water catchment and how you use that in your home. So I, I've kind of done that, so I don't want to belabor that and give you another case that just on permaculture. Let's just talk about food forestry. Understand that we can do food forestry in an area that's 10 foot by 10 foot by 10 foot by 10 foot if, if we have to. And we can actually get a lot of productivity out of a little 10 foot square. Now that's, that's the size of a small bedroom and an average, you know, production built home today. Uh, I think the room I'm sitting in right now is 10 by 12. And you look at that and you just think there can only, as a, gar a gardener, 
you just think there's only so much production I can get out of there. But as a food forester, I can get a lot more production with a lot less work. It actually might be more work initially, but I can get a lot out of it. And I can grow a lot of species in that little 10-foot area. And I might have to spend quite a bit of money to acquire them, but if I'm smart about it using cuttings and seeds and grafting and replanting, I can plant one this year and then next year use a lot of what I have there to replicate another 10 by 10 area and then to replicate another 10 by 10 area and just bring in diversity with a few new things here and there. And every time I bring that diversity and I can spread it through, I can do these 10 by 10 areas and I can connect them together or I can do them in little pockets throughout a, a small suburban backyard. I can do this however I want. Or I can do something like I just did, and I can put in over six or 500 feet of, of swale and put in 40 main productive trees and then start building from there and build a huge, what we call a zone four style forest that four to five years into it, you're basically harvesting and doing just a little bit of maintenance. Where that little system, I'm going to have to do a lot more maintenance, nowhere near what I do with a garden, but a lot more maintenance than a big mainframe forest. And I can be anywhere in between those, or I can go out and I can terraform a hundred acres or more into a massive food forest system. And I can start in a relatively small area, even on that hundred acres, maybe just initially putting in a half acre to an acre of food forest. And again, use the resources that first planting creates to replicate that system and move it out over time and have this evolving edge. So I can do it anywhere. And I then have a system that will produce more productive material per acre than any other managed system on land. I have to go into aquaculture to produce more. It's the only way I can produce more. It will produce more than modern agriculture ever could or ever would hope to, but what it won't do is grow a thousand acres of wheat that we can run a combine through. But if you're concerned about your future, for all of the reasons we talk about here, How likely is it that you're going to have a combine to run through a thousand acres for yourself personally? And the answer is you're not, unless you already have it, and you might not even if you already have it. Um, the days of the small farmer are largely being destroyed and rebuilt at the same time and being re rebuilt on a new paradigm. The farmer who does 40 acres of corn and beans and corn and beans and a little bit of livestock is, is, is a vanishing species. Because it cannot compete with the, the, the farmer that does 10,000 acres of corn and beans and corn and beans using mechanized equipment, uh, off-site labor, modernization. It can't compete with it. It can't. It's a commodity crop. And the 40-acre farmer of corns and beans is re being replaced by the 2 to 10-acre farmer doing the things that the big agriculturists can't do. From unique and, 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 and heirloom vegetables to just better tasting, higher quality food. So when you look at this, unless you are in the real mechanized agricultural world, your future is pretty dim unless you're taking an alternative path. And if you're growing for yourself, it doesn't make sense to be growing corn in any massive scale. We can grow corn. I can show you how to grow corn right in through a food forest on the edge. It's planted in different areas, and you'll say, like, it won't pollinate. It'll pollinate. Little clumps of four or five here and there like a corn bush, and you can produce corn, and you'll have less pest problems. So we can do that, but we're not going to do it in mass. So that acre of food forest will never produce as much corn or as many pecans as an acre of pecan orchard.
or as many pears as an acre of pear orchard. But it will produce more total productivity and more diverse productivity than anything else that we know of. And the diversity is not just for diversity's sake. And it's not just for the strength that it provides in the species supporting each other. It's also because if you do get hit heavily by something that devastates your pear crop, you still have your peaches, you still have your apples, you still have your herbs, you still have your berries, you still have your nuts. So it's it's just like the old saying, I'm not putting all your eggs in one basket. The problem with America today is in every industry, we've put all our eggs in one basket. There's a lot of people that, that know about something called the the Irish potato famine, where tons and tons of people died, and the country was ravaged, and even those that survived were very miserable for a large number of years. Most people don't realize why it happened. Well, the t potatoes died. They got a disease. Yeah, but why? Well, first of all, monocropping. They were doing fields of nothing but potatoes. That's already you know weakness. But secondly, as they started farming potatoes in Ireland and having a lot of success with it, they looked at it and said, well, which potato is the best? And they came up with this potato called the Lumper. It produced more pounds per acre with less work than any other species they had. So the government came in and said, thou shalt grow thy lumper and nothing but thy lumper, so help you government. And thou shalt do as thy say, or thou shalt lose thy farm. Grow thy lumper now. Great. So when a disease hit that keyed in on the lumper, without a diversity of species of even a monocrop being potatoes, it hit all of them instead of just the ones that were most susceptible to it. And this is before Monsantoization and all of these other things and chemicals and stuff. They were growing naturally, but they were growing one crop of one variety in one field, and it decimated their food systems. And we're arrogant enough that we don't think that can happen today, many of us. We think, that well, there'll, there'll always be wheat and corn and soy, and there'll never be something that knocks out the, the big ones. And, you know, there'll always be, you know, there could be shortages, and it'll cost more, but I'll pay more because I have money. Well, you may not always have money. Your money might not buy what you expect. There's, there's so many things that can fail. And the only thing that makes sense to protect yourself is to take responsibility for some of your own needs. And, you know, when we look at our needs, their food, their water, their shelter, their energy, their security, and their health and sanitation. And I'll just leave the other five out for today. And just talk about food. Nothing will give you food security like a forest, even a small one. That's why you should care. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and get into uh, the questions that we have for today. And again, um, there's just so many of them. I mean, I'm scrolling right now through uh, like two pages of questions, and there's no way I can do them all. Uh, some of them I'm going to have to not answer, even as I continue the series next year. Um, but... Understand that the reason I'm not answering some questions is because they're redundant. So if you don't hear your question, odds are the answer is in one of these series, right? Because the same questions come painted different ways. Or you're too specific. If you're like, my situation is X, Y, and Z, and I don't care about generals. I want to know how to do this on my property, and I have this kind of tree and this kind of soil, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. The general answer is your answer. You have to adapt the solution to your property. I can't make these shows consulting for one person on their unique situation because, as I said at the very first show I did and that kicked off the series, every situation is unique 
and no situation is unique. There's differences in every piece of land, every solar aspect, every soil type, but in the end, the solutions are always the same. Understand what you want, design what you want, trust nature, and go. So with that in mind, let's go ahead into the first one. Now, this is a common one, and but I'm going to try to answer this in a way that will help people be, in more generic terms because this is going to be a very common thing, especially as people start buying raw land or properties and, and you know with houses that have sizable pieces of land that are in the affordable range, you're generally going to see a lot of these properties heavily treed and wooded and bushed. It, it's crazy, but a wooded property generally sells, in most instances, especially in the small holding, the half acre to 10 acre size, a wooded property generally sells less than one that's a great big lawn that has to be mowed and maintained which is, I would never want a big open grass property that's to be mowed and maintained, though it would make the installation easier, and that's what this question is. This comes from Jeff, uh, who spells his name the way Jeff Lawton does, G-E-O-F-F. For those that are trying to look up Jeff Lawton when you hear him uh, mentioned, it's not J-E-F-F, it's G-E-O-F-F. It's that fancy European way to spell Jeff. Anyway, how can I incorporate edibles into an already existing stands of wood? I live in Minnesota on 1.1 acres at the edge of town, about a half acre of woods on the east side of my property. The woods are over, oak overstory with various elms and other mixed in. I would like to introduce edibles into the stand of woods. My thought is to work the edges hard, as you talked about on the food forest show with bushes. How would you recommend working various layers into existing woods? Okay, you have a canopy. You work on everything else. There's seven layers of a forest. Uh, odds are that many of those other layers are already in there. There's vines. There's But you figure out how to fit them in. There's... There's a reality here, though, that we have to look at bigger. So Jeff has 1.1 acres, and there's about a half acre of woods, and he wants to work with that 1.1 acres, uh, that 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 uh, half acre. You, you have a couple choices, Jeff, and this is really the, the down and dirty of it. You can work the edges, and you do it however you want to, right, including planting trees that will come up and extend the canopy so that the half acre will become more like three-quarters of an acre eventually if you do this. And it's a great way, especially if the solar arc is right. If the edge of that woods gets good solar exposure, you know, if it's if, if it's a it's a north edge, it's going to be difficult to just extend because your sun is always, you know, blocked by the existing woods. But if you have an east or a west edge, or if you're really lucky a south edge, you can work with that. So you just extend the edge and you plant your your canopy species coming out from that edge, and then you just work it like it was wide open. There was nothing there. You're going to consume land to do that with. That's one way you can do it. Two, you have another six-tenths of an acre. You can forest a completely different part and leave those oak overstory as like a zone five forest, or you can do both of those. Okay, and, and, and really there's nothing, there's nothing more than that. The only other choice you have, if you want to create more edge, would be to go in and start taking out some of those trees. That's your only other option. And you could do that interesting. You could scallop shape the edge. So you could go along the edge and take out a few trees that cut back into the edge and then come out and back in and then come out and back in along that whole line. But you might be taking out some really beautiful mature trees that you don't want to take out. And frankly, unless you know exactly what you're going to plant, you've got a whole plan done, don't cut it down. You can always cut it down later. You, once you cut it down, you can't put it back. So I would say you have six-tenths of an acre that's open, and you have an edge line to work, 
and work that. And the way you work in layers is to put things in as they fit. You're not going to go into the middle of that and plant a lot of stuff that's productive. You might pr plant some things that are quite productive, but are a little bit more niche-oriented, like ginseng or doing mushroom cultivation or things like that. Most species that do well in shade need some sun to establish. Um, but you could go a little bit into that edge and start incorporating shade-tolerant things that do well, um, even with only limited exposure, like gooseberry and currant would be a couple things you could put a little bit further inside, and then work your things like blackberries and raspberries, etc. out. You can go right to that edge and plant things like hardy kiwi and train them up those furthest out on the edge big trees and then extend your edge from there. It's up to you. Let's look at it from the, the way I get this question more often. I have 10, 5, 100, 1,000, 5 million, 4, 3, 1, 7, fill in the blank with whatever number you want, of land that's mostly forested. How do I work with that? You, you have to cut. In most instances, you have to create clearings and glades and establish your food forest in those clearings and glades. There's, there's just no way around this. If you have wholly forested land but, and light doesn't get down to the floor, then you're not going to go in there and plant a bunch of productive trees and have them start growing in that closed canopy. Now, if you have a sparse canopy, you can just start planting right in amongst them, and you can atrophy out some of the less productive trees over time and use the canopy drop as your supporting element. So that huge tree, that huge elm or oak that drops a shit ton of leaves, instead of chop and drop, let it drop leaves and leave them there. And, and pile them up around your apple or your pear or your peach or whatever. But if you just have forested land and you're like, I want to put in some food forest, unless you have some edge to work with with good solar aspect, you're going to have to take out some things. But the good news is you can do it in pockets. And you don't really have to then, if you have a good established forest system, You don't necessarily have to worry about swales and hoogle beds, though they're quite productive. So what you could do, and I would get an excavator for this. I would definitely get an excavator for this. You could go in and say, okay, I'm going to open up five quarter-acre pot plots for doing five different quarter-acre food forests and put them like little patches. Let's say if you had 10 acres, that might be a good pattern to do. And you go in and you open those up, And you could just open it up and put all of the excess material to the ground and start planting your forest and take your big wood and use other use it for resources like building buildings and, and creating pole barns or whatever. Or if you have a lot of scrub tree to work with in there, you might put in a whole textured pile of hugel mounts. So imagine now you're coming through this rather established forest. You're walking down this path you've created, and it opens up to a quarter to a half of an acre. And there's these little hugel mounts everywhere. The landscape's all textured with all of these productive elements growing up out of it. And if you want to keep some of that managed to edge, then you have to open up a piece of that and kind of bring it more to a, a pasture standpoint. And you have to graze that or you have to crop it or you have to do something to maintain that opening or the forest will close it for you. But you could do it that way. But there's no magic wand I can give you where you have five acres of wooded land and you can just put productive trees in there. 
for these species to establish, they need light. And this is important to understand, how does nature teach us how to do this? Well, if you look in a forest, in a, in a well-established forest, you'll see a lot of smaller trees, skinny ones, craning for the light. And eventually, one of the big monarchs of the forest falls. And whether you're there to hear it or not, yes. When a tree falls in the woods, it makes a sound. And it, it scares the squirrels and the birds and the frogs and the snakes and everything else. And there's this big opening. And that big tree often, as it falls, takes out other trees, limbs, and branches along the way. And we call this a glade. A glade is an opening within the forest. And... All those little understory trees that are sitting there, they're not just there to be understory trees. They're there waiting for their turn. And they reach for the opening. And the species in that glade may go through a radical shift from one dominant species to another. If it's a pine falling and there's been a bunch of oaks just trying to get in there and they grow slower and they're right in behind those pioneers, that's also this little oak glade establishes. And it overtakes the pines, and the pine forest begins to shift toward a mixed hardwoods. That's that's how that happens. So if we're going to do that, we should go in and carefully survey the land, ask ourselves where are the best places that we can establish water features, that we can work, uh, that we can you know use the, the the natural slope of the land to get certain things done, whether we're going to swale it or whatever we're going to do. We should figure out the the most ideal places with the least valuable species and the least valuable trees currently and cut those areas. And we don't have to 100% cut them. If you had an area like that, but there's just two or three beautiful white oaks, leave them. Take out everything else. Well, then they'll create shade. Yes, but they'll create openings. And those openings will create opportunities and build that forest around them. Or if three are too many for the area you're working, leave two. Which two? Whichever two most advantage what you're trying to do. At some point, I can't give you a complete paint by numbers. You have to evaluate the situation, and you have to determine for yourself, what do I want? What would it look like if I had a magic wand? And what is in the way? What has to go? And I think it's a horrible thing in many instances to cut very productive, beautiful, mature forest. But if you can turn that around and do something with it, like build a home, and then fill the glade with productivity, well, then there's a reason to do it. What I would never do, buy 100 acres of timbered land, go in and wipe it out, and then start from scratch. Even if my goal was to completely transform the full 100 acres of timbered land, I'd probably do it an acre or two at a time. And I would advance that productivity And even if I wanted to sell graze, then I would put in an acre of forest and an acre of pasture and a belt. And then I would advance that. And I would, I would clear out a lot of that forest with cattle if I was doing something that big, not just machinery. Um, but I can't, folks. Those of you, I get this question tons of times, this question. What do I do with land that is already forested? You either find another piece of land or you select certain areas and you open it up. You are not going to go into mature woodlands and establish fruit and nut trees without creating a disturbance. Nature does it through things falling down, through fire, etc. We can do it with a chainsaw. We can do it with an excavator. We can do it with animals. But one way or another, it, either you open it up or you don't progress. 
or in the instance of the original question, you have open areas and forested areas, and you work the edges and the other open areas. Those, those are your only options. And keep in mind, as you get into bigger and bigger pieces of land, that your zone one should be small, your zone two a little bit bigger, your zone three a bit bigger, your zone four. So you would generally do food forestry in, in a lot large holding in two ways. A very intensively managed zone two food forest, which is more like an urban food forest, closer to the dwelling and intensively managed, and a zone four. The zone four would be the larger mainframe food forest with very little maintenance other than harvesting and establishment. And then you'd have a zone five of wilderness. And the wilderness is where we selectively hunt and gather, and we don't do much else. And that zone five should be bigger than zones one through four combined in most instances, especially with one or two families occupying a space of something like a hundred acres. So when you're establishing that productivity, you don't need to take it all. I just don't want somebody to one day hear something like this and just all of a sudden break out an excavator or a saw and just start clear cutting. That's, that's not the way to do this. Here's the other question I get in so many different ways, but it's always the same. Uh, this is from Kevin in West Virginia. How far apart do you plant trees, shrubs, etc. in the system? The recommended spaces seem a bit far apart, but if you're planting support species and developing different layers, shrubs, etc., maybe the recommended distance is a good guide. But if you're keeping the height low as far as you can reach, does that change the distance? Thanks, Kevin. Well, you're asking the question, and, 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 and there's the, always the answer of it depends. If you're building a mainframe food forest, something like you know a three-quarter acre big system with big trees, trees that are going to get up high, the recommended distance, um, I, I pretty much say the recommended distance is bullshit. Don't even look at it anymore. Look at the canopy size of the tree and decide when that tree is mature in this system and the other trees that are going to be mature in this system, how much interaction of the canopy do I, do I want in my system? Do I want breaks in the canopy, right? Or do I want the canopies intertwined? And you may want one or the other. And you may want that in some areas and not others. You may want some areas really shaded in. And you may want some other areas more old field mosaic feeling and a little bit spaced out. So then what you're going to look at is what's the canopy of this tree when it's mature. And you're going to do your spacing based on how you want that interaction to play out in a big system. In a system like it seems more like you're asking about, which is an urban system where we're cutting the trees at head height and we're constantly pruning those. And we'll save some on that because there's a, another question that brings up a, a pretty interesting guide that could be used for this, uh, and I'll, I'll just wait on that. But, yes, it drastically changes the difference. Um, you would look at recommended planting for apple trees of being like in an orchard environment where they're somewhat pruned, like 20 feet. A big apple tree, a full-size, big, mature apple can have a 40 or even some maybe as much as a 60-foot canopy. So you would never plant apples then five feet apart. You wouldn't in an urban environment. Uh, a space-conscious urban design, you might plant three or four apples very, very close together. Maybe plant it five foot, five foot, five foot, five foot, and prune those like one big hedge. But this is, again, so you're asking someone... When I sculpt my, 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 my block of marble, what do I sculpt it into? Whatever you want it to look like when you're done. 
But there are some things that we can look at. And, and, and the biggest thing when you're doing spacing is to design a pattern. Look at the space. Evaluate the space. Let the space tell you what to do. It will. If you stop fighting it, if you stop worrying so much, if you stop fretting so much, the space will define what it needs to be for you. Look at videos on YouTube of established food forests. There's tons of them. Just type food forest in YouTube and just start watching. You'll see very, very intensive plantings. And think about this. If you space it further than you'd like and you're not getting the results you want, you realize more will fit, you can plant more. If you plant it too close and you start to realize that some things are too close, you can either dig up and move some things or cut them out. You can't mess it up. You've got to give yourself permission. To do this. Now, when it comes when you start thinking about where do the support species and go like this, this is, this is kind, and what are the spacing? It's kind of backwards thinking. What you do is you design the system as it will be at maturity. There'll be 40 or 50 mainframe species, or in a, an urban situation, you might have a small area and have more than I have in a large area. Because you're going to have smaller trees and more diversity crammed into one footprint. But in the end, it will look like this. To get there, I need X number of support species. Well, obviously, when an apple tree is five years old, it's a bad time to try to move it. It's kind of established. It's got its root system down and all. So I'm going to plant the main species, not just the main trees, but the main shrubs and bushes and all the things I'm going to want to use, a pineapple guava here and a hardy kiwi there. And I might not plant them all at the same time. I might plant a vining species like a kiwi two, three, or four years into the system. But I'll know where it's going to go. Or I'll figure it out. Either way is okay. But the stuff that's going in the first year, I want to put it the way I want it in the end. And then where do the support species go? You just fit them in. And if you realize I was going to do 7 to 1, and I planted 5 to 1, and boy is it crowded, and I, I, I don't feel comfortable going any further, fine. There's probably room for the rest of them, but stop. The spacing in a food forest also has a lot to do with swaling. And I'm telling you the way that you figure out the distance between your swales, how many swales you're going to put in, and where your swales go is to get a level and shoot the contours of the land you're going to work with and mark it with flags or stakes and look at it. Start asking yourself questions. Is there hard runoff I could be picking up that I'm not? If that's the case, where's the hard runoff? Okay, now, let me put a stake in the ground there and let me shoot a level from that spot that would pick up that hard runoff. Where does that go? And just look at it. And sooner or later, and shoot those swales as far as you can until you run into the boundary of the area you're working with. And then say to yourself, would it hurt if I continued this deal on the land? And I'm only going to food forest this, but... If I went further with that swale, might it go somewhere that would pick up water? And might it deliver water somewhere that would be beneficial for something that's even not quite the same type of food forest? I mean, we have a zone one area that we're going to plant intensively with these head-height prune trees. And, and the lowest swale in that system spills straight into the big mainframe swale in the main system, in the, in the zone four system. Now, I've never seen that done before, but did I sit down... And say, you know what? You know, that'd be cool. I want to do something that's never been done before. Let me think of that. Oh, I've never seen a zone one, zone four 
border each other, and both systems use swales, and the Zone 1 swale spill into the Zone 4 swale. No, it's not what I did. We looked at the Zone 1 system, the Urban Garden Showcase. We brought students here, and everybody came up with different designs, and we, we've kind of worked with all those designs and figured out what's going to work best for that area. We designed that area. We put swale berms, and they're more like paths than big swales. But little berms, shallow, three-foot-wide paths, and then mulched the bottom of those paths with cardboard and hardwood. And then we're going to sheet mulch pretty much the whole area. And we looked at it. We went, well, that's cool. And then we looked at this big three-quarter acre piece to our east with the best soils really on the property to do a food forest in. And we look, and right behind us was a giant building with a huge roof. And then out in front of us was another building with a pretty big roof. And we realized all the water on those roofs, yeah, they went into the urban area, but they also then spilled into this mainframe area. And we said, hmm, what would happen if we shot a contour line right from the corner of this building? And we shot it, and it went back into the corner of the property. Gee, there's our topsoil. Not because I'm a genius and said it should be here, because the land told me that. So then we just moved down grade. The land slopes this way, to the to the, basically to the southeast. We moved down grade about 35 feet, just for shits and grins. And we we're going to shoot a line, and then we said, wait a minute, wait a minute. That big roof has another side to it, comes off over there. Let's just go, this building is about 30 feet wide, So instead of going 35 feet, let's go right to the other corner of that building, put a flag in the ground, shoot a contour line. And it sort of mirrored the top contour line on toward the back. It maintained mostly a similar distance, and it went all the way out front to the road. And it went right along a hard driveway runoff. Well, that works. Hell, let's do that. Then we put, we said, okay, let's just, there's some space here. There's room for another swale. We don't want to flood out the neighbors. Let's move another 30 feet downgrade because we already had established that and it kind of made sense to keep that and because we were running out of space. Can we put in one more swale, create another linear planting area and discharge this water so that once we've taken all we can safely, when the water does discharge, we don't flood our neighbors, we go ahead and let it out the bottom of the landscape? And the answer was yes. And we got this really cool, funky zigzag swale at the end. There's tons of edge and all kinds of cool things going on. Because I sat down with a print and made it that way? No, because the land made it that way. So the spacing of about 35 feet of inner swale between my three swales in most areas is because the land says so. And I look at it now and go, could I cram one more in the back? And that would be tough because I'd have to bring the excavator all the way around and I go, I don't really need to. I have other things I can do with that. But the land set that. Now, if I was working on four acres, I would probably have much longer swales and much bigger inner swales. Maybe they would be a hundred feet, maybe more. I don't know. I'd have to go out to that piece of land and I would have to shoot the contours. I would have to look at the opportunities. I would say, uh, on this four acres, is it like mine? Is it all rock? Or can I put ponds in? If I can put ponds in, now I'm looking for catchment areas to interconnect with the swales. I want the pond to be filled by the swale, and when the pond overflows, to backfill the swale, and then overflow the swale, and move down to the next swale system, or pond, or pond swale system. 
It's all about harnessing the land to its best use based on your goals. I know that you would love me to just say, what you do is you put your swales exactly 50 feet apart. Well, what if you only have 100 feet of land? You can get one at the very top and one in the middle and maybe one at the bottom. But what if you have 70 feet of land? Might one do the whole job? Might three little ones do? I, I don't know. What budget do you have? What equipment do you have? And then the planting, you fit it in. Do I do kind of spaced out mainframe or do I do really, really intense? Do you want to manage it a lot or do you want the system to be self-replicating, self-sustaining? You have to answer those questions for yourself or there's no real way for you to come up with a design that's going to work for you. You'll come up with a design that would work somewhere else on some other piece of land. And to drive home how common these questions are, the next question is from Mike. I'm not going to answer it because I kind of just did. It says, how prominent should swales be in a small one-quarter acre up to three-quarter acre food forest design? How far apart should the swales be? Do you only plant trees into the downhill swale berms, or are there in-between areas so they are not all lined up on contour? And then he gives me more information because it seems like it might matter. Okay, and it doesn't because it's the same but different. Uh, there is one question in there that I will answer, though. Do you plant trees into the downhill swale berms or also in between areas so they're not all lined up on contour? It depends. What do you want? If you want linear strip forest with cell grazing interswales that are largely open with edges that can be planted to shrubs and, 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 and productive vines and ground covers that then sparse into kind of like a pasture situation, go back to another forested system and sheltering those cells and pushing animals through them and making that part of your system, then you plant them all in the, mostly in the berms and a little bit out from there. And some hardier species maybe on the backside of your swales can go in as well. Uh, I would never plant a tree in the bottom of a swale uh, unless there was a reason to, right? It depends. But in general, I'm going to keep my swales open. They're a natural throughway, a natural pathway, and I'm not going to plant into them. I'm also, if I plant into them, I'm going to start creating obstructions for the water that flows within them. Now, might a very mature system long-term grow its own trees in there? Fine, I don't care at that point. That system's so established, the swale is just part of the landscape at that point. But I'm not going to plant there. But I, what if I want the whole thing forested? I'm going to put in the swale berms, and I'm going to plant along the swale berms and in the swale berms, and then over time I'm going to advance it all the way down to the next swale. I can do that in a variety of ways I've talked about before, so I won't do it again. But the answer is you plant it where you want your trees. There is nothing wrong with all of your trees primarily being in wood lines, on contour, along the swale burn, being narrow strips, snake-like forest, going through cells where your animals go through. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no reason not to do it other than, dun-dun-dun, you don't want to. That's right. If you don't want to, you don't have to. I could take that area out there. And I could add another 80 to 100 productive trees to it and turn the whole thing into one massive forest and kill off the cells. And you know what? Someday I might decide that's what I want to do. And if I do, the beauty will be the forest I plant will give me all the resources I need to not buy more materials and do it that way. 
Because as I improve other parts of the property, if I have enough pasture-type land to do what I want with that, and I prefer to bring my animals into the forest and graze them through it once it's established, I may choose to do so, and I may not, because it's what I want to do. So it, when it comes to where you plant, you plant based on what you want the end goal to be. That said, if you set up a swale and you're in a low-rainfall environment and you get too far away from that swale, especially in your first or second year, before you've established a mainframe forest to extend the edge of, that swale's effect will be quite limited to how much water it will provide for that tree too far downgrade until you hit the next swale. As you establish the forest, as the root, fungal net, etc. begin to establish, the effect of the swale will grow downgrade. So you can go too far, too fast, and not have enough irrigation effect. So it's better generally to stick way up by your swale, get that established, and extend that system. And if you look at the PRI as a tuna farms in Australia, this is exactly what Lawton did. He put in a huge, long mainframe swale. And he got that system very, very established over about five to ten years. And then he ran chickens through the inner swale and started growing it 100 square meters at a time. And then that whole area will fill in. But he established that stuff up next to the swale first. How far down from that swale can you go? It depends. What kind of trees are you planting? How much rainfall do you have? What's the soil like already? How much slope is there? What's your budget? Can you irrigate? I mean, how much maintenance are you going to put into it? How much work do you want to do? Until you have those questions answered, the answer is, it depends. But generally, plant in the berms and work down. And then there's always other it depends. Like, well, do you want to maybe do little clumps of forest in your inner swales? So you've got big, long strip forest, and you've got like uh, maybe something like a pomegranate gilded with a fig and a few little climbers and ground covers, like a little island in the middle of your inner swale of these more drought-tolerant plants. And then you, you're going to maybe fence that off and graze your animals around it whenever you're going through there. You can do that. We have some places where we've cut down some live oaks because they were pretty sick and opened up that area a little bit. So we just chose the sick ones to be the first ones to open up the area. Well, the stumps are still in the ground. They're in the inner swale, most of them. What we're probably going to do is cut them flush to the ground. They're high right now so I can see them and not run into them with my tractor. And then we'll berm over them. And plant little islands like that of bushes and, and, and low canopy stuff that's a little out from the edge, at least at first. And we have natural hugu culture. Why? Because I decided I wanted natural hugu culture. No, because the stump's there. And it just works. It's so much understanding what you have and working with what you have versus trying to transform what you have into something you saw that somebody else had that you liked. You can transform the system into something like they have, but don't try to transfer the landscape. Transfer the landscape. Let the landscape tell you what to do with it. It really will. Next question comes from Surf Viver on the forums, and he says, "One, I, I, I shit you guys not. This is the this is the questions and the order they came in. How close should trees be planted together in a support tree, including support trees? Just did that. 
Um, two, I'm not interested in eating squirrels unless maybe if food prices increase very dramatically. That said, if I plant nut trees, it is likely that I will have a lot of squirrels be attracted to my property, which will then end up eating lots of tomatoes, ground cherries, and everything else beyond the tolerable levels. My mother puts sunflower seeds out for birds, and she gets a lot of squirrels and chipmunks, which eat her tomatoes and the like. Gee, so your mom has a very thin monocultured system with not a lot of resources, attracts squirrels with something like black oil sunflower that they love, and they eat other things. What a shock. Um, there's a couple things you can look at here. Number one, uh, first of all, your nut trees will produce mast in the fall, and they will attract squirrels mostly in the fall and in going into winter, especially in your northeastern climate, because I know where you live. So if that's the case, then the squirrels being attracted by the nuts themselves won't be there during your primary growing season anyway. Not a problem. But if you plant a forest, you will have squirrels, especially in the eastern United States. They will come. But if you plant lots of different things, they'll eat a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I would plant the ever-loving crap out of mulberry up where you're at. Because you could take mulberry tree, you get it growing, you cut an end off and stick it in the ground, you get another mulberry tree. Cut an end off and stick it in the ground, you get another mulberry tree. Cut an end off and stick it in the ground, you get another mulberry tree. And in your spring, and if you do a couple different varieties of mulberries that fruit at different times, I know you got quite a bit of area to work with, um... Man, they'll eat mulberries like crazy, and you'll never use all your mulberries anyway. So they have something that they like that you don't have to really worry about that much. And they'll poo, and they'll poo, and they'll be part of your nutrient cycle. So now they're like livestock for you in, in sort of a way. If you really had a problem with, with squirrels, probably your best defense is a rat terrier. You still have a little rat terrier dog, and they'll terrorize the hell out of squirrels for you. Also understand that you should be designing your system with zones in mind. One, two, three, and four. Your tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that should be very close to the house. And squirrels come close to houses and eat bird feeders and do all of that in suburbia because they don't have what they need. They don't really want to be there. They don't like it. It's dangerous. There's dogs, there's cats, there's kids, there's people, there's noises, there's cars, there's horns, there's You know, all kinds of things that make a little squirrel, which, by the way, almost everything in nature eats, afraid. But he's in a suburban island, and he has no other choice except to nest in somebody's woodshed, or in somebody's, you know, garden shed, or in the one big oak that's left. And then he has no choice but to forage on what's there, so they become very, almost domesticated after they start coming around all those noises and sounds and things like that, and no one kills them with like a gammo pellet gun. So if you have a more remote area like you have and you have a large system with lots of diversity and up by a dwelling you have a zone one garden, you're already going to have very small problems from squirrels to begin with. You just aren't going to have that big of a problem. And if you threw a rat terrier out there and like he decides like he likes to hang out in the garden area, you're going to have very little problem because he's going to terrorize the squirrels especially when they don't want to risk him tearing their little furry heads off when they have all this canopy to work with, and no matter how many squirrels there are, you're not going to lose that much of your crop. You'll never take all that's available out there. It's when you have these isolated pockets. Now, here's the other thing. If you had a 40-acre field and surrounding it were trees, and in the middle of that field you put in squirrel nirvana, you put a little pond for them, You put in great big feeders with tons of black oil sunflower that they eat like crack, and you waited, you would see almost no squirrels ever show up. We're talking tree squirrels, not ground squirrels. Eastern United States. Um, why? 
because there's a big open glade, and that's Ross to run through that field, and he's worried about Hawk taking his ass out. They don't like to go without cover. So if you have an open area with your primary garden and a canopied area with trees and everything out away from it, then that's going to create a squirrel buffer zone. They don't want to come there. They come there because they have nothing else to eat. My knowledge of your place is it's kind of up in the woods. And I won't say what state because you probably don't want me to. Um, or maybe you do because you're on the perform. But I'll just not say the state because I know you're a little hairy like that. Um, you have way too much big woods around you to worry about this. There's too much for them. They, and the more you plant, the more they'll have. I wouldn't even worry about it. And right now I know you're managing that property remotely, and you're probably not going to do a lot with tomatoes remotely anyway, but you can. And with as much property as you have, plant a hundred friggin' tomato plants. As much rain as you get where you're at, and as soil as you have where you're at, they'll survive. You know, plant them from seed. And if the squirrels eat some, you won't care. It'll be a tolerable level, not an intolerable level. Um, then he says, please elaborate more on pine beetles. I'm not clear if there are too many pine trees because of the lumber industry. What about Asian longhorn beetles in the east or other evasive species? I need to research this more for your comments. But I'd like you to elaborate more on the mentioned sources of info and what to Google search. Thanks. Um, I'm not going to get deep into invasive species and beetles and things like that. Um, Now, these uh, Asian longhorn beetles, they're a significant threat to like 20 different species of hardwoods, including some of our most important ones like oaks and hickories. Uh, they're not not a threat, okay? But the, the question more should be, why are they such a threat? And if you read up on the Asian long beetle and just Google Asian long beetle, for instance, you'll find that when you hear what they've done in China, it's they've done it on plantations or monocrop stands of trees. Why are there too many pine trees? Because we've planted them by timber companies? In a large degree, yes. And does that mean that you might not see pine beetles move out and, and take out pine trees in a more mixed hardwood forest? No. But where are they coming from? These massive stands of pines. It, more what I'm trying to get across to you guys with these invasive species is you're not going to fix the problem. Okay. A government's going to do what government's going to do. So you can sit around and worry about it, or you can do something. And the best thing you can do is plant a diverse ecosystem. And don't worry too much about these things. Nature will restore the balance. What I'm more trying to say about the reason that we're having these problems with what we call invasive species, and calling things, again, like juniper, an invasive species on the Saysbrook Steppe, where it's a native plant where black locust is being called invasive, where it is a native plant. We've got invasive on the brain now. And yes, it causes problems when something like an Asian long beetle ends up in the United States through a packaging crate, which is how they think it happened, um, and goes into a landscape that never was prepared to deal with it and doesn't have any native predators. But the real comp component here is that these organisms are attacking these ecosystems because the ecosystems are sick. Maggots eat dead meat, not living creatures. And if they do infect a living creature, they infect a rotted part of that animal. What you're seeing in many instances is the climate is sick and dying. And these systems that seem horrific may in the end do a lot of balance restoration. Now, am I saying we should just start going out and, you know, 
catching lots of Asian beetles in China and releasing them in the United States and, and making more of them. No, I, I'm not saying that. And am I saying there won't be any problems from them? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you don't need to worry about it. It's, it's not important to what you're doing as a permaculturist. Because the answer is going to be to be plant the most diverse, resilient ecosystem you can, observe, interact, and work with what works well for you. And if it's an invasive beetle that's taking out some of your trees, the answer is going to be and continue to increase diversity, observe, and interact. And if no beetles come, the answer is going to be continue to increase diversity, observe, and interact. And if it's a plant that becomes aggressive, the, the answer is going to be continue to increase diversity and observe and interact. And if a plant doesn't come and cause you invasive pro problems, the, the answer is going to be continue to increase diversity and observe and interact. Continue to build soil. Continue to build habitat. Continue to manage your system based on your end goals. And no amount of pine beetles or ash borers or global warming or global cooling or anything else that anybody can come up with to worry about is going to change what you need to do to build and manage your systems on your property. It may have a massive impact on the timber industry's ability to produce pine lumber. It may have a massive impact on the ability of the corn industry to continue to produce tons and tons of high fructose corn syrup and poison our citizens with it. But it's not going to change your solution to your problem. So I don't think we need to worry about it because there's not much that we as individuals can do other than establish diverse, resilient ecosystems. So since we're going to do that anyway... Yeah, I know. There's a problem with squash bugs. I, yeah, I'm not going to grow squash this year and see if that helps. I'm going to grow so many varieties of squash in so many areas and see which ones survive and then key in on a few varieties like that. Or see which ones get attacked heavily. And since seeds are cheap, I'm going to plant the heck out of those. And when they're completely infested with squash bugs, I'm going to cut them out of the ground and throw them in an incinerator and use them as a trap crop for the ones that they don't prefer. And maybe put all that reproductive energy. I mean, there's always solutions. There's always solutions. But I'll tell you this. If you want some pine trees, don't not plant them because pine beetles might come. Because they're not killing young pines. They're not killing young pines. They're killing mature pines. And that's, that's a fundamental reality there. Now this Asian long beetle is just a new one for me. It might be a bigger problem than I, than I understand. But, My solution is still going to be plant a resilient, diverse, diverse uh, ecosystem and continue to observe and interact and, and adapt. Hope that makes sense. Next one is a little bit more of a generic permaculture question, but I, I think it really applies to food forest design. And it's, it's a big reason to, if you can, take a PDC. So many of these questions would be answered if you had a PDC, a permaculture design course, behind you, especially a good quality one. Um, but it's basically, can you explain sector and species analysis? So let's talk, start out with sector analysis. Zones and sectors, sometimes by the uninformed that see it from the outside, kind of use them as interchangeably. Zone and sector analysis, zone and sector analysis. But it's like saying, it's not like saying peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? It's like saying uh, water and soil analysis. They play together, but they're independent. 
We're going to analyze water for certain things and like how much of it do we get? Where does it come from? What kind of quality do we have? And soil needs water, but we're going to analyze soil for, for various other things like how compacted is it and things like that. All right. So they're all interconnected, but they're all also separate. And if you say zone and sector analysis, then you have a tendency in your mind to think zones are like sectors and they're not. Okay. Now he said zone and species, which is, is great, but I'm just starting out with the sectors so that we understand. Sectors are about analyzing energy and about determining, do I wish to encourage or block that energy? So one sector I might look for is where's my greatest fire risk? Where's my greatest? So I, I would have my print and I would draw. And the best way I've seen to do this is kind of like a radius, like a circle in a certain color and say like from like, just like a, like a target sector. So you have two lines going out and then a rounded sector, and we have a certain color there. We say, this is a fire sector. And there might be two of them. There might be a main fire sector this way and a secondary fire sector. You know, One might be to the to due south, and the other one might be to the northeast. And they might not quite connect. There might be a block in between. So we put that down. Where do my main winter winds come from? I'll draw that onto the print. And I can do it with this fancy thing with the lines and sector and the compass making the radiated part of it in a certain color. I can just draw an arrow that says south wind and point it the way they come from. All right? And, and, or, or, I mean, uh, winter wind. And where's my summer winds come from? And I can do that by observing the land. I can do that by getting airport data. I can do that by talking to people that have already lived there. A lot of times your airport data says, well, the wind comes from here. But there's a big-ass forest over there and then a big-ass forest over there and a opening in between on land you can't change and gee that changes the direction the wind actually comes from because it funnels through there in my case i have a great big field behind me and the wind should generally in the winter here come out of the the northwest but my winds actually kind of come from the northeast due to this natural funnel creation so it shifts them a little bit so i know that because i stood there and watched it happen so i put that down my winds in the winter my winds in the summer Where is a view that I want to enhance or obstruct? I have a road. Does it create noise? Or is it a beautiful road that I always want to see? Do I want, so I have a visual sector. And do I want, and which, which, and I might have multiple sectors of good and bad views and noise sectors. Where does my, where do the primary sounds come from? And do I like them or hate them? You say, where would you like a sound? Maybe I have a, a babbling brook behind me and it's close enough to my, my porch that when I sit on there, I hear that brook. I, I may really not want to put anything in the way of either the visual or audio sector of that brook. I may want to hear and see that feature. So I may want to design at least a view sector out to there. If I get clever, I might want to design a Zen view sector. So I might actually funnel down my view of that brook. Let the Brook both come in this visual little tight area of view and the sound will come through there so I'll hear it but it'll also percolate around all the other things but my view is drawn to this one place now how do I make that zen maybe I put a little water garden up by my property so that when I look through that sector the natural water feature is connected to the man-made water feature and I hear and see and sense both of them at the same time that's awesome And I can go that far with it, or I can just do basic sector analysis. But I want to take all of the energies. Where's my summer and winter sun? Where's the solar radiation? What blocks it? Where's it, where's it harsh? Where's it soft? Where's it non-existent? 
And, and then can I change that? Do I want to? Am, what, is what I'm doing going to change that in the future? So that's a sector analysis. Okay. A species analysis is something that's not always done, but it's very advantageous. A species analysis is I go through and I identify as many plant and animal species as I can on the property now. Because it will tell me things. If I go out and I see lots of chimpodium species, like lamb's quarters and spiny amaranth as weeds, I know that I'm probably looking at alkaline soil, and I'm probably deficient in a lot of minerals because they both grow in alkaline environments, uh, and they are both major dynamic accumulators. Now, I would have to know that to extrapolate that information. But if I just did a species analysis and just identified as many things as I could, then I could start researching what do those plants do. And whatever they do, that's probably where your deficiencies lie. If I find lots of plants with deep tap roots like docks and dandelions, I know I have a lot of compacted soil. If I find a lot of plants with very, very shallow hair root systems, I have loose soil. If I find plants that prefer acidic environments, I have acidic soil. If I find plants that prefer alkaline soils, I have alkaline soil. Now, understand, it's not prefer. It's not, it's not just prefer. It's also produce. So a lot of times people will see pines and say, oh, this is acidic because pines make acid. Likely it's actually alkaline and it's so alkaline that nature sent the pine to bring acidity to balance the equation. So a species analysis is identify everything I can and see what that tells me about the property and then integrate that with my management goals. I know from my analysis of species here, I have alkaline soil um, and I have nutrient deficiencies. I need lots of dynamic accumulation And I need to work with the, al the, the alkalinity. And I need, where I want to grow something that's acid-loving, I need to do something that naturally creates more acid, like using evergreens. And that just is part of my design process going forward. And some species that I'm going to plant would prefer there be a more, more acidic environment. But as I'm building humus from all my support trees, humus produces humic acid. Therefore, I'll get stratified acidic layers. So I'll understand it, and I'll know, well, this tree really likes acidic soil, and it's not doing real well. So I need to do something to accelerate this a little bit in this area. It needs a little bit more humic mulch, maybe, maybe in some areas a little bit of sulfur, right? Maybe not. It all depends. But if I'm cycling animals through there, And then I'm building both the fungal and bacterial elements. The bacterial-dominated soils are going to become acidic. And the fungal-dominated soils are going to buffer into a, 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 a well-preferred le level of alkalinity. And everything will take care of itself. But it's still nice to know what I'm starting with. So I know what to look out for. So that's species analysis. Sector analysis is all about energy. Is the energy positive or negative for my design goals? Do I want to invite it, channel it, or block it? View, solar aspect, heat, wind, water. That's a sector analysis. A sector analysis is always a part of a good, intensive permaculture design. A species analysis is a good idea. But, it's, but when you go to a PDC, generally you don't do a species analysis with your final project. 
partly because it's a time constraint and partly because you might be designing a property that you have a bunch of information on that you didn't do that with. Um, species analysis is talked about, but it's not one of those five pieces of paper that generally go on that final project, though it would be a great idea to add. And if I were doing permaculture design as a consultant, it's something I would definitely add to the final documentation I would give to a client. Um, let's see how many more I can do before I have to wrap up here today. I have an interview in about 50 minutes right now. Um, here's an interesting one. What is the a question for the second food forest show? If it's appropriate, well, we're now on the third one. Uh, what is the minimum amount of time and years needed to have good ROI on a backyard food forest? Details. I currently live in Marylindistan, uh, Marylindistan. Uh, and as bad as it is here, I'm going to hold out for another 10 years before I walk. I'm wondering if it's worth my time and money. Put in a 50 by 150 foot food forest. Oh yeah, Brian. This is Brian from Maryland. Uh, absolutely. Uh, because in 10 years, it's going to be awesome and it's going to make your property more marketable. Uh, 10 by 150 is not that, or 50 by 150 is not that big. Um, you can, you know, what, what, when people say like, uh, uh, ROI, um, what, what's the ROI on a beautiful self-sustaining system? And do you have to get it in dollars all at once for it to be fulfilled? And, and my answer is no, but it depends on what you focus on. If you focus mostly on fast-growing species and bushes and shrubs and things like that, because you're in Maryland, so like you can grow gooseberries and you can grow um, elderberries and you can grow blackberries, you can grow raspberries, you can grow strawberries, and those are all things that might produce a nanking cherry. Um, these are all things that might produce pretty fast, like maybe a little tiny bit in your first year, but definitely your second year. And your trees, you can start getting production your third and fourth year. So then you're looking at a timeline where you have another six years of productivity. And if you wait till you leave and you have zero experience with a food forest and you're going to start one then from scratch – How far do you have to go before you get that dream home up to what you're looking for? And if you have this beautiful little 150-foot-long, 50-foot-wide food forest with all these species, how many cuttings and seeds and grafts can you take when you leave? You have your own living nursery. So you can have all of the inputs from a planting standpoint taking with you when you leave, as long as you know anything that's a remotely similar climate. And they don't have to take up a lot of space because we're taking cuttings and seeds and stuff like that. So it would make your transition more affordable. So you would also get more for your property and market it faster and have less problems selling it. So now you have more seed money to go in. So the ROI just starts to compound, like compound interest there. But you can start getting production out of, uh, of a food forest in year one. Plant annuals with it. Plant your food forest to go in and plant watermelons and squash and tomatoes and pepper. You got lots of open space your first year. Even with all those support species. There's all kinds. Plant a bean. Every, if you put in a tree, you know, there's at least head height, like an apple or something. Plant two or three beans around it. They're not going to swamp it. Do that with every tree. They'll get nitrogen and you'll get a yield. So throw annuals in and grow them wherever they grow. But the, 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 the ROI you need to be looking at, Brian, is yes, your yield from about two years through ten years, 
which will get bigger and bigger every year. The other yield you need to look at is the property value. The next yield you need to look at is the educational value. The next yield you need to look at is the materials yield. So again, you know, how many cuttings can you take off an elderberry? How many plants can you leave with? You know, how many, if you plant a good support species like mimosa, how many seeds can you select from your best trees for your next established system? How many of these things can you give to other people to encourage them to plant systems before you leave? And how long does it take to get an ROI? Depends. How good are you at what you do? But I'll tell you this, 10 years from now, if you do finally leave Maryland, you'll be better at what you do than you will if you don't do this. And that's the priceless ROI, the education and the knowledge of what works and what doesn't and how to make that system work for you. So that's, that's my answer to your question. Here's a final one. It's where I get to learn something in this series, which I, I really like. Um, Jack, what, and this is from Kevin. What are your thoughts on backyard orchard culture, specifically the part where you chop the tree off at 18 inches, allowing for more bushy growth from the tree? It seems like a great idea especially for most of us with one quarter acre or smaller lots. Basically, instead of planting one tree and letting it grow to around 10 feet wide, you plant two different trees and prune them, and you only let one side grow so that one tree grows in one direction while the other tree grows in the other, giving the appearance of one large tree with two trunks. You can do it with three or four, which would allow someone to grow four different types of fruit tree in the same 10 foot by 12 foot area, allowing for more varieties and thus more different flowering and harvesting times. Here's a link to a good overview of the system. And it's a link on deep green permaculture. I'll put that in the show notes. And here's a link to Dave Wilson's site who popularized the concept. DaveWilson.com and it's a specific post. And uh, this is from Kevin in West Virginia. Okay, I, I'll tell you there's a couple things at play here. Number one, um, I think that the biggest value that this has by looking at it is it shows people what to do. It gives, and I, I don't think you have to do it the way they say. They, they, they give a bunch of patterns and here's how big and here's how to do this and here's, but what it does is it takes the person that's in the mental lock and goes, I don't understand how to fit five trees in this area. And you look at it and you go, Oh, well, I can put them that close together and I can prune them that way. Okay. I'll do that. I'll also tell you what I, what I immediately thought of when I, when I saw this. There's a lot of people out there that are trying to put these small systems in and are going to these grafted trees. We have one. It's got four or five different apples grafted onto it. And they're interesting and cool, and I'm sure it'll be neat. But I think you'd be much better off with four different apple trees planted into one of these patterns than one apple tree with four different apples grafted onto it. I think there's a lot more stability and resiliency in that system. And we could do some cool stuff. Like we could do four trees and one could be... Uh, a pear, and one could be an apple, and one could be a plum, and one could be a cherry. And it would be like a fruit salad tree is what it would look like. There's a lot going on with this. I don't like the word orchard. I don't like the word orchard because orchard, to me, is conventional. Orchard is we have a peach orchard and an apple orchard and a pear orchard. And we have all this open space in the middle. But that's not what this is. This is permaculture. Um, and usually when someone calls something a backyard orchard, it ends up being very permaculture, 
all by itself because since its backyard, nobody wants to fill their whole backyard with 10 apple trees of all the same kind. They want an apple and a pear and a peach, and then they have all this open space, and then they start to plant other things, and then the diversity of the system itself leads to where the lawn starts to turn into plantain and, 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 and dandelion and other things and glover, and then they just kind of let that go, and then they start mulching things, and then they say, well, what if about this little plant somebody gave me, and, it, 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 and that's what this is. So I'm not going to talk a lot about this because, honest to God, I just found this this morning, um, this very morning when I reviewed these questions to see how many I could get in today's show. So I haven't had a chance to do a lot of review of this technique yet. I'm going to dig into it more, but I think it's an immensely valuable resource. And in my little urban garden showcase, I may try a lot of these patterns to see how they work. And Once you have a pattern, then you have something to work with. So once I have a pattern of how to handle, let's say, a a 4x4 four four area or a 8x9 area, and I mark it out and I sheet mulch that, and I say, well, I could put four plants here, and I would prune them this way. Then I could pick four plants to stick in there. And then if I want to go beyond this backyard orchard, I can say, now I got this edge. I got this 10-foot edge circumference. By the way, it's going to be a much smaller edge in the first couple of years as these trees establish. So what do I put as a ground cover and come out? And where does the comfrey grow? And where does this go? And where does that go? And once you have that, that foundational pattern you're going to work with, then it's like puzzle pieces. What would fit there? What do, do I like that? Uh, no. Does something else fit there that I do like? No. Is that really that beneficial? Yes. Do I have to take that yield? No. Okay, I'm going to put it there anyway. Yes, there is. I'll put that there instead. Do I like that? Yeah, put it in. So I'm going to put these two resources up today, and I think a lot of you are really going to really be encouraged by them when you read them. And he goes through, on the one, um, pruning patterns and, and, and all kinds of very cool things and pruning mul over multiple years. I think this is a great guide. And I think this is going to be very, very helpful to a lot of people trying to do these small spaces. And I think this will actually be very beneficial to people more in my space, where you have a big space, but you're also putting in that Zone 1, Zone 2, urban-style, intensively managed system, and you want to manage that this way. How do you do that? So anyway, uh, Dave Wilson uh, is nursery, and uh, he's got a whole thing on backyard Uh, orchard culture and uh, deep green permaculture who I think deep green permaculture is the guy that Jeff Lawton featured in Australia with the 600 square foot backyard yeah I'm pretty sure that's who he is but he's got this whole post on this and, and I tell you what a guy that knows how to do it is this guy this guy's growing like 130 varieties of, of fruits nuts and berries Uh, on a 650 square foot backyard. So I'll provide links to both of those, and I hope this has been beneficial to you. Remember why we're doing this. Nothing is more sustainable from a food production standpoint on land than a well-managed forest, and that's a great way to, uh, to provide for your food security, which is a great way to start living that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. If 
Yeah.